Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, September the 9th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. 45.6. That's the ceiling Donald Trump seems to be hitting in the national polling averages. 120. That's how many battleground state electoral votes that are still within his reach. 42 million. That's the amount raised by Republicans' main Senate super PAC nonprofit pairing in August as their presidential nominees' numbers tanked. And 73.5 million. That's how much Bob and Becca Mercer have spent on politics en route to shaping the Republican Party as they see fit. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Hello to my favorite party people, Scott Bland. Hello. Ken Vogel. Hey. Eli Stokels. Hey, Kristen. Hi. And Charlie Matassian. Hi, Kristen. And hello to Kate Baker from Nebraska. Kate, thanks for writing. What's your question? Hi, everyone. So a CNN poll came out this last week, and it's saying Trump is leading by two percentage points, but other polls are saying Clinton's ahead. Is there a methodology difference with the CNN ORC poll? What's going on? Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, that's a great question, Kate. It's one that uh, a lot of people are beginning to ask this week, especially because it was a little bit of a shock poll, I think. I don't think people were expecting to come out of Labor Day weekend and see a poll with Donald Trump uh, leading. And I think the simple answer to your question is that different polling organizations use different methodologies. And, you know, there's considerable uh, discussion about which method is most accurate. And, you know, part of the problem with polls and, and uh, understanding them, if you, if you don't pay really close attention uh, and I don't, I, you know, I'm not as good as I think Scott may be on it or, or our own Steve Shepard. But uh, the problem is there's so many variables that can uh, affect the outcome. Like, for example, you know, even the phrasing or the order of the questions can influence the results. You know, whether you ask uh, Donald Trump's name first or Hillary Clinton's names first, whether you ask them with uh, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, whether you just ask if the election were held today, who would you vote for? Uh, I think in the CNN case, there, what, what's really interesting about it is that they did a poll at all over Labor Day weekend, I think, because the industry standard is that you would not do a poll on a holiday weekend like that and not uh, Labor Day. But I do think, you know, one point to make about the CNN poll that's worth noting uh, is that this, I believe, was the first time they switched from the registered voter model to a likely voter model. And oftentimes when you switch uh, from those two models, from one model to another, when you go to the likely voter, meaning going uh, away from people that are simply registered to people that are much more likely to vote, you, be, you begin to see the numbers change. And oftentimes it works to the Republican advantage. Charlie, after this poll came out, we saw Chuck Todd, who is an ace among aces, right? And I say that sincerely, not sarcastically. And we saw him unskew these results because he thought that it was too weighted toward white people without college degrees. Are you pro or con unskewing? 
I'm, I'm in general, I'm pretty pro Chuck Todd, uh, in part because I don't watch that much cable TV, but uh, I don't watch that much of the TV punditry, but he's really good. I mean, he, he really good. knows his stuff. Um, and so when, when the fact that he did it, I think, tells you it's a little bit more than just a gimmick. And I, I think, you know, unskewing the results was, it was an interesting exercise. Uh, you know, I, I think people shouldn't take any one poll too seriously. And I know that there was a lot of consternation about this poll, lots of freak outs on Twitter and, and everything. But I, I think it was interesting. You know, the argument is valid. I mean, his point was that the, uh, you know, the poll oversampled white voters without a college degree, which is Donald Trump's sweet spot. So naturally, if you, you, if you do it that way, you're going to get a pro-Trump result. And if you tweak it another way, as they did, you will get a different result with Clinton in the lead. You know, I think... What it just reminds me, and, and I think should remind everyone, is that don't pay too much attention to one single poll. The best way, the most reliable thing to do is look to polling averages. We do it on our site with the battleground polling averages um, because that is how you'll get the best idea of what's really happening. Never pay attention to a single poll. Look for a polling average, whether it's the Real Clear polling average, Real Clear politics polling average, or our battleground states polling average, or HuffPo. Lots of people do these polling averages, and that's the number to, to those are the numbers to keep an eye on. Scott, you're a former hotliner, as is Chuck. Where do you stand on this question? Yeah, I think the the important thing to keep in mind is that even even if a poll does everything methodologically exactly right, just because of the way statistics work, you you stand a chance. You know, with, with probability-based sampling, you're you're going to have some polls that don't reflect reality. Now, we don't know whether or not this is one of them, right? Because election day isn't tomorrow, and we're not gonna we're not gonna find out. We we have no way of knowing whether. Uh, one candidate is is ahead or behind right now, except for watching these polls. But you know, because of the way the margins of error work, and because of the very nature of asking a question of you know some number of hundreds of people to find out what millions are thinking, you're going to get some polls that uh, deviate from the pack, and that's why these averages are so helpful. Uh, and I you know I think the like as an academic discussion, kind of looking into why uh, poll numbers say what they say based on, you know, what the composition of the poll is and what the methodology is. I think I think that makes some sense. But I think, you know, ultimately, um, you know, a poll, uh, you know, a poll stands a 95 percent chance essentially of being within, you know, within the margin of error of what the results are. But sometimes they're going to be outside it. And there are so many polls these days. It's going to happen. Thank you, Kate, so much for your question. And thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kate. Let's get to the next data point. It's 45.6. That's Trump's polling ceiling in the national RCP average. Now, Scott, he's clearly improving here. Is this previous ceiling not breakable? I don't I don't know if you can say it's not breakable, but I think what we'd want to, uh, you know, first of all, we're, we're still waiting for really the first evidence of him breaking it. You know, we're t- in this discussion about polling, right? One of the things we wrestle with a lot as journalists uh, covering this stuff is figuring out, okay, when you see a poll that looks different from the averages, is that an outlier? Um, you know, is it one of these kind of statistical things that just happen sometimes? Or is it the beginning of a new trend? And how do we calibrate our, our coverage to account for those two possibilities? And so, you know, we're, we're still, still waiting to kind of see 
him build on any of these outliers that have popped up uh, from then on, breaking past the ceiling. And, you know, a lot of the fundamentals of this race that we look at have remained the same. You know, the popularity numbers kind of went up and down a little bit around the conventions, but they've pretty much settled back into, again, looking at the polling averages, back into where they were. You know, both candidates uh, more unpopular and popular, but Trump more so. And, you know, Trump's campaign is now advertising on and off sporadically here and there. But there's a question of, is he doing it enough to actually affect the trajectory of the race? So we're really not seeing anything in in either the top line or the underlying numbers to to say that that he could, you know, break past that that ceiling that he's had. But certainly, it, you know, something could happen. We're, we're just not seeing it yet. Well, I think the thing that gives Clinton, I mean, I had a Clinton advisor tell me this week that that CNN poll was sort of a, a, a splash of cold water in the face, but it was like a glass full of cold water, not a full bucket. Mm. Okay, so the reason why that's not, they don't feel like that's a full bucket, I think, is because, you know, you look at the polling averages, she's still up about two, two to three points. Um, but they see, you know, Trump's range right around 38, 39 to 45. Her range is really around 44 or so up to 51. And so she may be toward the bottom of her range, but her range is above his. She's broken 50% in a poll or two. You know, Republican pollsters acknowledge that Romney's ground game, his get out the vote operation, fell apart at the end of their campaign. They believe the polling models they had that had Romney saying, I think I'm going to win the day of the election. They think the polling was right and that they attribute the loss to the ground game. They say that's worth a couple of points. The other thing to note, I think, is that this is a four, these are four-way polls with Johnson and, uh, an and Stein point. involved here. Mm-hmm. And I think if they don't make the debates, what generally happens, you know, unless you have a Ross Perot situation where the third-party candidate's actually on the stage and the entire country gets to take a look at them, some of these voters who right now, and we know there are a lot of voters who don't like either candidate, might find a home when a pollster calls, might find a home and say, okay, I'm going to vote for Gary Johnson. I'm going to vote for Jill Stein. If he Not learns that where many. Aleppo is. Well, I mean, today may have may have hurt that, but I think, you know, the more that this becomes really a two-candidate race, that advantages Clinton as well, because people who are voting for Trump seem to be pretty much ma- their minds made up, and people who are just never going to vote for Trump, I mean, that seems pretty set in at this point, too. Now, Charlie, you edited a story by Steve Shepard about this ceiling, and one of the most interesting pieces, one of the most interesting nuggets in that story is this idea that one of the reasons Trump's support is limited compared to Clinton's is that in matchups just against her, he's winning fewer Republicans than she is winning Democrats. How important is that? Well, I think both trends are uh, pretty important. The one that shows that he's consistently in the low 40s, but also the one that shows he's consistent, consistently winning less or a lower percentage of his own party than Hillary Clinton. Because obviously in a presidential election, especially one that's going to be clo- you know, theoretically close, uh, he cannot afford to be winning eight out of 10 Republicans when she's winning nine out of 10 Democrats. And it goes to show, you know, the party's still not unified. You know, the hour is awfully late for him not to be unified. So yeah, I think the idea that he's uh, at 82% of Republicans is a real problem for him. Eli, you look like you want to jump in here. But first, I have to give Charlie credit for not busting out laughing in the middle of that answer when Ken just put <laughs> this weird statue in front of Harry it's not Callis. Weird. It's not weird. weird. I'm sorry, who is this? He is a legendary Philadelphia radio uh, broadcaster, or actually just Philadelphia broadcaster. He he broadcasted the Phillies games for, for decades. That is like a gold-plated, <laughs> it's, it's not, it it's not like a gold. bobblehead. That's but totally not gold. Some sort but of it's statue worth it's or copper. Or I don't know what it is, but it's really cool. How heavy it looks it? fancy. That's not, that's not heavy. Hmm. It's not worth much. It is in my heart, and I gave it to Ken. 
Eli, back on task? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, after that, no problem. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I think, you know, the problem, the reason this election is still close is Hillary Clinton, right? It's like both of these candidates, like, but for their opponent, they'd be losing by a lot more. You know, Hillary has the gift of running against Donald Trump, and Trump has the gift against running against a very politically damaged nominee on the Democratic side. This is not someone with Barack Obama's political gifts at all. Glenn Thrush wrote a great piece this week, made a lot of Democrats very uh, angry, but, you know, the five reasons, you know, or, or really asking, is Hillary Clinton losing it? And, and, you know, giving five, uh, sort of answering five questions about that. I don't know that she's losing, but but is she losing it? I mean, that's that's a question you can read the piece. But one of the things that he gets at, and he's covered Hillary a long time and knows her and her people very well, is just this sort of aversion to politics, right? Whereas Obama was a great campaigner, was this magnetic force on the campaign trail. She is very guarded, very reserved. She's just not a natural at it. And she's personally very resistant to submitting herself to a lot of the things that, you know, to are required when you're involved in electoral politics, running for office. And so she's very guarded. She's just not good at this. I think that people see that and they see her on the defensive now over all of these stories, the emails, this sort of drip, drip, drip of allegations that has really, I think, cost her a couple points in the last few weeks and, and made this a close race again. I mean, the, the reason that this is still close and that she's not running away with this is because even though people may recognize sort of a higher baseline of competency and ability to do the job with her. A lot of people have, you know, really deep reservations about putting another Clinton in the White House and electing Hillary Clinton, who they just, you know, there's a reason that she grades so high on untrustworthy. Uh, There's a reason why her negatives are over the 50% mark, too. I mean, she is the second least popular presidential candidate in history, and she's very lucky that the first is Trump. We would be derelict in our duty if we not did not use this opportunity to bring up that um, national security forum that we watched because it really did serve as a dry run of the debate which is happening on September 26th which will probably be the most important moment of the campaign. And what we saw last night was Hillary Clinton good on substance but looking shaky, right? Donald Trump awful on sub- substance but back to his confident self. I mean, you know, certainly there's a lot of valid discussion going on within media circles, at least, about whether um, he's being graded on a curve. I know the Clinton people think he is. What do you think about that, Charlie? Well, uh, yes, I do think he's being graded on a curve. And the expectations are so low that almost anything he does, you know, if he can walk in and chew gum on, on matters of substance, he gets credit for it. Um, but I also, one of the things that kind of gets on my nerves is, you know, criticism in the media. And, and trust me, like, we deserve a lot of abuse for, for lots that you know, lots of the coverage this cycle in the media. But uh, the idea that uh, writing about Hillary's style doesn't matter, um, you know, rubs me the wrong way because style matters to voters. Uh, it's, it's not the only thing you should be covering. Obviously, the substance of their issues matters a lot. But think about, for example, Al Gore in 2000 and the debate he had with George Bush. Is there anyone in this room, is there anyone anywhere who thinks that uh, Bush had a, a greater command of the issues than Al Gore uh, that year? I, I, I don't think so. Yet Gore really did himself a disservice stylistically with the harumphing and sighing and the very public exasperation. And it showed in the polls afterwards and it was reflected in the people's comfort level, voters' comfort level with Al Gore. And so I think that that is a hurdle that Hillary Clinton, whether she likes it or not, will need to pass, that it's not enough for American voters. We've learned over time that it's not enough to be the smartest in the campaign or to be the most prepared or to be the most credentialed. You also have to present an image 
that's fairly likable to voters, too. So we're going to end this segment by me giving you the words of Kevin Sheridan. He was a strategist. He was on Romney's campaign. This is about Donald Trump. If he reads even a quasi-coherent speech without throwing up on himself, he wins the day. Hillary is that bad of a candidate. I mean, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about getting graded on a curve. Let's get to our next data point. It's the number 120. That's how many battle state electoral votes are still within Donald Trump's reach. Charlie, which states offer opportunities here and which are completely off the table for Trump? Well, if, if you uh, go with the the uh, the map that we started out with here at Politico in the beginning of the cycle, you had 11 battleground states uh, and they consisted of 146 electoral votes. Now I think that the map is probably close to uh, about eight states. And the three that I think are no longer probably uh, on the map, or at least they're a really far stretch right now, uh, are Colorado, New Hampshire, uh, and Virginia. And when I say uh, they're probably no longer in reach, I mean, uh, I think from the evidence we see in the polling, from the strategic decisions we see from the campaigns, from the spending decisions, and also from lots of interviews uh, that our reporters have done with uh, state and local party officials in those states, we begin to get a much better uh, and much clearer picture of how those landscapes look at this late spot in the campaign. And I think uh, nearly everyone, even on the Republican side, would say that in those three states, uh, it is really, really difficult for Donald Trump to get back in the hunt. Uh, I think there's probably a, a middle tier of that 11. So you have the three that are probably off the map. There's probably a middle tier that consists of uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, and Wisconsin. Michigan and Pennsylvania, they've always sort of moved in tandem in presidential years. Both haven't gone uh Republican at the presidential level since 1988. Uh, I think they're very different states in lots of different ways, uh, and I think they're acting differently this year. But just from the polls alone, uh, it looks like that those three would be the next three that probably uh, will leave the map if Donald Trump doesn't really right the ship in them. Uh, I would say, I would caveat that and say Pennsylvania, he's maybe in a little bit better shape. He's down uh, 10. I know, the but the, the, poll, the polls aren't everything. And I think the le- there's a level He's down of... down to has two field offices compared to her 35. All true. But having said that, there is a level of fear in here. This is just anecdotally, and this is just my instinct. I just get a sense of uncertainty from Democrats about Pennsylvania. They're just not as certain about Pennsylvania as they are about Michigan or some other states. And I think there's some fear about what might happen in Western Pennsylvania in terms of Trump's support, what might happen in traditionally Democratic Northeastern Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't think as a Pennsylvanian, I don't think he's going to pull out Pennsylvania right now, largely uh, not just because of the Pen- Philadelphia problem, uh, but also because he's getting killed in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And you, and you can't. That's you can't, the ball game. I mean, without both. that, as Harry Callis would say, Pennsylvania is out of here. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Now let me move on to the other ones that are in the Let's air. Talk that about that was well done. We yeah, I know you don't appreciate that, but that was like. I've been that thinking about decent. that. I didn't have the microphone when, we, when you first introduced <laughs> Harry Callis, so I was waiting to bust out Harry Callis's signature call. Seriously. Well, I mean, Trump's probably, you know, the thing is, if Trump does well in Pennsylvania, he still has to put some other pieces together, right? Because Clinton is almost already there at 270 now. And so he has to also win Ohio, right? He probably also has to win Florida, which is a much more diverse state than 
usually fits the Trump portfolio and is a little bit of a head scratcher, kind of like Nevada, in that Trump is as competitive as polls show him to be in a state like that, right? This is not Iowa or New Hampshire. Uh, but North Carolina is fascinating because this is that sort of one swing state that went red in 2012, very narrowly. Obama mm-hmm. won in 2008. It's continuing to see an influx of new, educated, young, more cosmopolitan voters. And so it is a fluid population. It's not old South, right? This is new South. And the problem that Trump has is he's getting squeezed and he may be getting dragged down. In most states, we look at, um, you know, the top of the ticket dragging down the down ballot Republicans. This is a state where the governor is, you know, so screwed electorally. You know, McCrory, who who passed the controversial bathroom uh, bathroom law and also a Senate race, you know, with Burr that he could lose. And so the Democrats are playing really hard in two other places. The Democrats are so much better organized in North Carolina that Trump is having to sort of treat as of late last month, uh, just to put it to a fine point on it, Donald Trump, zero field offices in North Carolina, Hillary Clinton, 30. Right. It may still be zero. And so you just look at the way everything is moving in North Carolina. And, you know, if he doesn't hold North Carolina, he can win Pennsylvania, Ohio, and perhaps Florida uh, and throw in Iowa. And I still don't think he gets there. Charlie, jump in. Well, uh, to me, if you can't win North Carolina, uh, if you're Donald Trump, uh, you're not going to win the presidency. Uh, But that's in part because of uh, the no Republican should lose North Carolina. Now, the to me, North Carolina has always been, or at least not always, but at least for a half century, uh, and this was true uh, a very long time ago, North Carolina has been the most progressive of the southern states, so it operates differently, and we're seeing it right now. Uh, we, as Eli mentioned, there's been tons of uh, demographic churn there, um, and I think it's probably coming closer to home right now, that it's, clo- that it's not going to be a state that Hillary Clinton can very easily win. Our next data point, 42 million, the amount raised by Republicans' main Senate super PAC nonprofit pair in August as Donald Trump's numbers tanked. Scott, how many seats would Democrats have to win in 2016 to hold on to the Senate in 2018? Uh, well, that, that's, that's kind of a rough question for them right now because functionally it's, it's possible that they could do as well as they could possibly do in 2016 and still lose the Senate again in, in 2018. Uh, but what we're seeing so far uh, right now is that is Republican Democrats are going to panic about that soon. And we'll explain why in a little bit. But so far, it's, it's Republican donors who are panicking about the Senate this year. And in particular, Senate Leadership Fund, the main Republican Senate super PAC, uh, our, our playbook colleagues, uh, Jake Sherman and Palmer broke yesterday that uh, they raised $28 million in August, which is more than in the previous 19 months combined. Uh, and then they raise a, an additional $14 million for uh, one, one Nation, the nonprofit that they work with, uh, because donors started to freak out in August as Trump's poll numbers slipped and started dragging Republican senators down with him. Uh, people like Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire and Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, who, whose states very well could be the majority makers. Uh, this fall, really saw their poll numbers slide as Trump's collapsed in their states uh, right after the conventions. And that's when all this money started to pour in. If you were going to put the odds on the Senate staying in Republicans' hands versus going to the Democrats on November the 8th, Charlie, where would you put them? 
Uh, I think it's highly likely that it will end up uh, in Democratic control only because of the numbers. Uh, You've got uh, 24 Republican seats up. And think about the map this way. You've already got Democrats only have to net five seats or four seats and win the White House because in a tie, the vice president would cast a deciding vote. So uh, you've got to get to, say, four with Hillary in the lead. They've already got three or at least there are three seats that look very likely to go Democratic this year. Uh, Indiana, uh, the the open seat there, Wisconsin, um, Ron Johnson and Illinois with with. Uh, Mark Kirk. So you start with three and then think about all the other great opportunities that are available. And Democrats just have to pick one of them, just win one of them. There's New Hampshire, there's North Carolina, there's Pennsylvania, there's Ohio, Arizona, Florida. So there's lots of opportunities there. Uh, And I think it'd be really hard, particularly if Donald Trump really doesn't make it much closer. It's gonna be really hard for Republicans to hold on. And Republicans actually could win one back, right? Their lone opportunity to play offense, they're actually doing pretty well in right now in Nevada, where uh, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid is retiring, and Republicans, for all sorts of strategic and symbolic reasons, would love to pick that seat off. And Congressman Joe Heck, a Republican from the Las Vegas suburbs, is actually doing pretty well so far. There's not been as much public polling there as we've seen in states like New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, but uh, in what we've seen, uh, he's been tied with Catherine Cortez Masto, a Reid protege uh, who would be the first Latina uh, U.S. senator if she if she wins. And, and Harry Reid is very invested in making that happen. But so far, it's a very close race there. And the problem is that uh, they've only got one real great pickup opportunity exactly. on the Republican side. But in addition to the three seats that many Republicans have already conceded to the Democrats, you've got at least three seats that are very contingent on what happens at the top of the ticket. You've got the Pennsylvania Senate race, the North Carolina Senate race, and the New Hampshire Senate race. And so if it's a uh, Hillary Clinton win of any size, uh, say four or more, or maybe five points or more, that's probably going to get it to the Republic or to the Democrats. Yeah, and it's so telling the way that uh, these groups Groups that we referenced who raised the $42 million last month are raising that money. I mean, they're basically saying, they're basically conceding Hillary Clinton is going to win, and they're telling their big donors, hey, you need to give us money to be able to keep the Senate to be a check against Hillary Clinton. And they, they openly admit this. I mean, Stephen Law, quoted in our story by Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman, Stephen Law is the executive director of uh, the Senate Leadership Fund and uh, the president, maybe, of the One Nation, the, the uh, 501c4. He said that Trump's nosedive in, the po- nosedive in the polls last month was a tripwire moment for the donor class. So they're basically like realizing, you know, a lot, he says a lot of it was driven by Trump's post-convention performance. It was a major galvanizing factor where donors decided they wanted to invest in something and that something is not Trump. So we understand right now, my sources tell me there's a meeting of Paul Singer's donor network in New York City as we speak. It's called the American Opportunity Alliance. And a big focus of that is the Senate. Singer, if you remember, was both a supporter of Marco Rubio and then a leader in that Never Trump movement. Well, you could understand why he wouldn't be urging his donors to give to Trump. He would instead be shifting their focus to the Senate. We see that in the fundraising numbers. And here's uh, getting back to the point Kristen made when we started this segment. The really interesting thing about this, right, is even if Democrats have a great night uh, on November 8th, 2016, they take back the Senate, maybe even give themselves a little bit of, the, of a cushion. Uh, look, look at the seats they have to defend in 
2018, two years down the line, there are five pretty deep red states where uh, there are going to be Democratic senators up for re-election. You're starting with West Virginia, Indiana, Missouri, Montana, and North Dakota. That's so, a brutal map. Right off the bat, that that is totally brutal. Those are states uh, Mitt Romney won comfortably. Uh, those are states that Donald Trump is going to win comfortably, maybe with the possible exception of Missouri. We've seen some polls there that are close, but Missouri is a, a red state at this point. Like, the, it's no one thinks it's trending in Democrats' uh, direction. These might and, be the only Democrats rooting against a Hillary Clinton win. Yeah, absolutely, right? You know, with that midterm backlash, <laughs> right? Like, you know, you, you could totally see that. But now, so you start with those five states that Democrats are going to have to defend. Then layer on top of that, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, these traditional swing states that we're talking about this year that are very volatile for both parties. And... Virginia, if Hillary Clinton wins, Tim Kaine is going to have to give up his Senate seat. There's going to be a special election in 2017. Well, he's going to be uh, filled by an appointee. Special election in 2017. Regular election for the full term in 2018. Whoever the Democrat is that's appointed is going to have to raise something like $50 million over two years and basically be running the whole time. Uh, Or... If Kane loses, he's going to have to turn right back around uh, if he's not vice president and run for reelection again in a, in a state that you know in a state that looks very much like a country that would have just repudiated the ticket he was running on. And then imagine this scenario: uh, you think that's going to be a money drenched year. You've also got say the uh, Democrats win I don't know 10, 15, 20 seats this year, and I think even Republicans will concede it's going to be Democrats are going to win House seats, net win of House seats. We just don't know how many. So the the House is going to be closer than it was before, maybe within reach. Uh, and then you've got redistricting on the horizon in the states. So uh, the governor's races, governor's races. Yeah. And so you can already see a uh, money drenched election. On Let's the talk horizon. about the House impact, Scott. What are you seeing there? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing um, that we're seeing in the House right now is Democrats kind of slowly, kind of carefully creeping up to this line recently that Nancy Pelosi just shouldered right through this morning when she again told our playbook colleagues that she thinks Democrats can win the House this year. And this is uh, something that... Way to keep the expectations in check there. <laughs> well, and this is something that they've been dinged for before. The DCCC, the, the House Democratic Campaign Committee, has been very, very reluctant to to walk up to this line. And I think, you know, they got dinged pretty hard in 2012 for saying that the House was in play when they only ended up winning eight out of the 25 seats they would have needed uh, to actually win it. But And now you've got uh, their caucus leader, Nancy Pelosi, getting out there and saying that she thinks that if, uh, if Hillary Clinton has a good enough night on November 8th that... Uh, Democrats can retake the House, which is something people weren't even talking about a year ago. The the exact quote from Pelosi is, if Hillary were to win 54-46, oh my God, it's all over. If it's 53-47, and I think that's in the realm of possibility, that's a big deal. Five or more points is a big deal. What do you think about this, Charlie? You have a skeptical face on. Well, uh, the reason is, is, is this. Nancy Pelosi, for all her formidable political skills, and there are many, I mean, obviously this is a super... Uh, political talent and epic political talent. You know, one thing she's not very good at is political prognosticating because she says every two years, no matter what, in the face of overwhelming evidence against her, that Democrats are going to win the House. So pretty much any time she says they're going to win the House, I dismiss it out of hand. Uh, having having said that, I, I also don't <laughs> think they can win uh, the House only because it's the the gap is too big. Even if it's you know, as if we get at maybe fifty five, forty five, something like that, it's it's closer. But thirty seats is a ton of House seats. Even in landslide years, you know, you rarely see more than a 20-seat gain, uh, and 30 seats is 
a lot. Given the way the house is built these days with redistricting, uh, it's just hard to see, especially when you take a look at a lot of the seats that Democrats would have to win. It's hard to see Democrats getting to 30. I can see them winning 15 or 20 right now. 30, though, that is a big leap. I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here Charlie. Like I I think 30 30 is definitely a big leap and gerrymandering is a huge obstacle for Democrats in the House right now, but I think the uh, the kind of underlying district by district dynamics of the battle for the House are shifting a lot underneath this Clinton Trump race. Oh my god, race. you're going to say the suburbs are gone, right? I'm I'm not going to say the suburbs are gone, but I think that the the uh, the battleground district list is not the same as we've seen in previous years. I think this the combination of this like Trump driving non-white voters even further away from the Republican Party and kind of loosening the college whites who have long been the Republican base is turning a lot of these suburbs where we've never seen competitive house races before into places where there are going to be serious races. We're talking about longtime committee chairs like John Micah in Florida, Daryl Issa in, in Orange County and down into the San Diego suburbs who have been in the house for a while and never seen a race, but they have large Hispanic populations, large African-American populations who are form a big Demo uh, Democratic base, and then large kind of white-collar, white populations that Trump has really unmoored a little bit from the Republican Party this time around. We've seen Clinton running very strong with them. And, you know, at this point, Greg Walden, the NRCC chairman, was speaking today. He said Clinton is leading, on average, in the battleground districts they're tracking, you know, in a two, about two dozen districts where they've just done internal polling. But at the moment, their candidates, the Republican incumbents, are still up by an average of 10 points. Now, the question is, though, like, that's what you would expect to happen right now when no one knows who these Democrats are. The House races are just coming online. We're going to see a lot of TV advertising over the next couple months. And I'm just wondering if those numbers aren't going to end up looking a lot more like what we're already seeing at the presidential level. But how much worse can Republican numbers get with non-white voters? I mean, uh, take a look at the last presidential election. You know, But that's the key. It's not just non-white voters. It's They're the base. And it's a bigger base than we've seen in the past. But it's this this big cloud of swing voters from these these white-collar whites. Yeah, but Democrats have been saying it feels like every cycle for the last decade. Oh, the suburbs, you know, that we're going to base our base control of winning back the house on the suburbs, the suburbs of Philadelphia, the suburbs of this city, suburbs of that, and they haven't been able to do that. I mean, I, I, I'm... If it sounds like I'm dismissing your argument, I'm no, not. No. I, I think that's where the path to success would be. But I would just say we should be a little skeptical of their claims because it's so frequent. Having said that, the one part that I'm definitely in alignment with you on is the idea that if it's a blowout, you'll see it in the suburbs because already you see in the polling data, Donald Trump is so weak in the once Republican suburbs. I mean, these are pretty competitive places. You look at, this is for you, Kristen, you look at the Philly suburbs. I mean, he's getting crushed there. And yeah, this is also about, true elsewhere, like, like too. Pelosi has always been overly bullish. And she, to me, was always sort of an outlier in this dynamic that you typically see where like Republicans, both in fundraising and in sort of prognosticating, they're always very bullish and they're always pretty projecting confidence. It's sort of like the Karl Rove approach, like Mitt Romney can do it. Just give me that last $5 million. I will take it over the edge, the, 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 the finish line. Whereas Democrats are always like, oh, we're going to get killed. Please give us money so we get killed less badly, you know? And, and Pelosi has always been sort of an anomaly there where she's projected confidence, as you point out, sometimes without actual cause for it. Uh, and so this is sort of yet another example. But I do think that 
Trump has sort of flipped the script a little bit where you hear Republicans now who are sort of saying, give us money so we can prevent a major blowout. And Democrats are projecting a little more confidence. And you even see some Democrats who are warning against it, not just in the House where it's it's obviously unwarranted, but uh, even in the presidential where there are Hillary Clinton supporters who are saying we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves. We need to like be cautious both in what we project to our donors and what we project to voters. Uh, but Pelosi, no such concerns. I will say the Democrats winning the House is definitely much less likely than not right now. But I think what's happened over the past few months is this path has developed where previously no one thought one even existed. Democrats have been talking for a while about how it was going to take after redistricting more demographic change into the 2020s for them to be able to do this. And all of a sudden there is a path. It's, you know, leapfrogging from place to place and it would require a lot of things to go right. But it is there. Our final data point, $73.5 million. That's the amount in disclosed politically oriented donations made by Bob and Becca Mercer since the Citizens United decision back in 2010. Now, Ken, you had a great story on Rebecca Mercer this week. She is the woman sitting at the nexus of the Trump universe. Tell our listeners, who is she and what is she trying to accomplish with this money and this influence? Yeah, so Becca Mercer is 42-year-old mother of four who is the daughter of Bob Mercer, this hedge fund tycoon who lives out in Long Island. They've been really ramping up their giving to conservative causes over the last few years and have remained a little bit of an enigma. So we wanted to find out sort of what makes them tick, particularly as they are, as you said, at the center of the Trump campaign, but also very well positioned after the campaign ends, no matter who wins, to kind of shape American conservatism, to be a force in what we are always talking about is going to be this tremendous scramble to kind of reshape the Republican Party after Trump, whether it's Trump is president and to reshape the Republican Party under Trump's presidency or more likely, as we just discussed and the polls would suggest, uh, if Trump loses to sort of resurrect the Republican Party, uh, there's going to be a, a whole lot of forces who were suddenly, um, you know, trying to reshape the Republican Party in their image. And the Mercers are going to be really at the center of that because of how much they've given. And so there's been a lot of interest in trying to figure out what do they want, what makes them tick, and that interest has tended to focus on Bob, the dad, uh, because he's the one who's writing most of the checks, but what we understood as we talked to more and more folks who have dealt with them is that Becca Mercer is really the one who is driving their involvement in politics. She's the one who uh, was a leading force in this play behind Cambridge Analytica, the data firm that is now Trump's data firm and that the Mercers encourage all the campaigns and groups that they fund to use. She's the one who is super close to Steve Bannon, who is the CEO of uh, Breitbart, who ran the Breitbart News, the pro-Trump nationalist news site, and who is now the, the chairman of uh, of the Trump campaign. She's the one who is super close to Kellyanne Conway, the longtime pollster, who is now the campaign manager of the uh, of Trump's campaign. And she's also very close to David Bossie, who was just brought in as the deputy campaign manager uh, for Trump. And she had a hand in all of these personnel moves. In fact, uh, a number of uh, people, inclu- including our, uh, including Politico, have traced the uh, the shakeup at the top of the Trump campaign to a conversation that Becca Mercer had with Trump at a fundraiser on Long Island at Woody Johnson's house, uh, and she is just that influential now. 
and we understand that there is definitely some ideology behind it. She sees herself as very populist. She sees the Republican establishment as deeply flawed, flawed, and she wants to, in the words of one of the sources who we quoted in this story, blow it all up and start over. Uh, but she also wants control, and that's one of the things that is so troubling to some of the Republican operatives and mega donors who we talked to, that it was not good enough for her to be a part of the Koch network, giving huge sums of money to the, the network of advocacy groups that are run by Charles and David Koch. She wanted to control uh, her spending, and so that's what she and her father are doing, and so that's how she has found herself at the nexus of power of the Trump campaign. Now, Ken, these are incredibly private people, right? And in the editing of this story, I inserted the word purchased in reference to the influence that she has accumulated. Now, magically, that word disappeared before it was published. But truly, what are the different avenues to influence that she has bought her way into? Yeah, so I, I mentioned the two for-profit companies that she is really influential in steering Cambridge Analytica, this data firm that is among the sort of leading contestants of the data firms to be like the leading data firm on the right, along with I360, which is the Koch's, uh, data firm and then a Republican party back firm that was once called Data Trust. I don't even know what it's called anymore. Uh, but you know that's that's so important because like whoever controls the data really controls the party. And so she has her hands on one of the one of the content contenders to control the data. And Breitbart News as well. Breitbart News. Can you think of another? media outlet or group or individual has been more influential in shaping the sort of narrative of the right. This is the alt-right when we talk about the alt-right rising. That's because of Breitbart News. It's like the organ of the alt-right. It's the organ of the Trump campaign. And it is controlled to some extent by Becca Mercer. Now, they also give money to uh, various PACs and super PACs. Uh, they give money to, there's a group that they have in New York called Reclaim New York. We didn't even talk about this in our story. This is like the Americans for Prosperity of New York. Americans for Prosperity is, of course, the most robust group in the Koch Brothers uh, network. Well, they are, it's their group, essentially. So it, it's really difficult to overstate their impact right now. They are the mega donors to watch, and Becca Mercer is the person to watch in the Mercer family. Now, they're given a lot of money, and they're in the upper echelon of generous givers within the Republican Party. They're not giving as much as Sheldon Adelson normally, right? That, I think, is an important point. It's so important to stress. It's not just necessarily the amount that they give, although it is huge, and they are the biggest mega donors to Trump. They've given $2 million to this super PAC that they control that's supporting Trump, and we expect that to be much, much more when the FEC reports come out in uh, in about 12 days. But uh, it's also that they, that they are sort of functioning in a vacuum that so many of the mega donors who we think of as like the leading mega donors on the right are not playing in this presidential campaign because of Trump, because of their aversion to Trump. And so the, when the when the Mercers do play in a big way, it's that much, it, the, it, the impact is felt that much more in the absence of these others. So you mentioned Sheldon Adelson. My sources tell me that Sheldon Adelson has still yet to write a major check to a pro-Trump super PAC. Zero dollars. This is a guy 
guy was being depended upon who the, the speculation was that he would give as much as $100 million to help Trump. There were operatives who were planning their whole campaigns around getting Sheldon Adelson's money. He has yet to give. Uh, he's typically a late giver, we should note, and that does make it harder to spend his money. In, you know, in other words, when you give it, when you give like a huge chunk of change late in the game, a lot of the really coveted advertising time is already bought up. But that said, he's already well past where he where he was when he started writing the checks in 2012, which was already late. He has yet to give, and that's got a lot of folks wondering if he's going to give it all. Or if he does give, whether it would be too late to effectively spend his money when he finally loosens the purse strings. Let's stick with this point because I think it's an important one. We are just 61 days away from Election Day, Charlie. If Sheldon started putting money in now, to what effect? Is is he out of time to make a difference? Uh, I say to zero effect. I mean, um, Trump's Trump's problem isn't that he's losing because he doesn't have enough money. First of all, if he got money from Sheldon Adelson, uh, it w- they wouldn't get very much bang for the buck at this late date in terms of buying what advertising. You can't buy a campaign infrastructure this late in the campaign. Money's not his problem. His problem is that he's an undisciplined candidate, that he is strategically and tactically illiterate, his campaign that is. Uh, and his problem is that he uh, has alienated too many Republicans and isn't winning enough of them and that he doesn't show enough command or interest in substantive policy to win over all the Republicans who might otherwise be on his side. So to me, the idea that uh, Adelson isn't all in or isn't contributing to him is at this point just sort of a non-issue. You know, those, those two things are related, Charlie, because in fact, the Times, and I'll give credit here to uh, my former colleagues, Jonathan Martin and Maggie Haberman, who had this story uh, about 10 days ago about Trump meeting privately with Sheldon Adelson uh, in New York and Adelson uh, kind of giving him a hard time and saying that he needed to be like more circumspect, needed to be more careful. And it was right before Trump gave that speech where he expressed regret for some amoral Amorphous, you know, things that he said he wouldn't specify what he regretted, but he had this sort of more introspective tone. Uh, and it is so interesting to realize that that happened right after Sheldon Adelson kind of gave him a hard time for being a little bit of a loose cannon, which is, as you suggest, sort of the fundamental flaw of his candidacy. Well, and I think we're at this sort of point where it's all become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Trump's refusal to invest in infrastructure and to invest in really his own data operation and certainly to invest in TV ads, which he has long told countless aides he thinks to be a scam. You don't get anything for him. He hasn't spent the money, right? He spent a lot of his own money to, you know, as as other outlets and, and Politico have reported to, you know, pay for real estate for campaign offices in Trump Tower, to pay for campaign events at Mar-a-Lago, to, and to get himself around the country on his plane, uh, and to rent arenas and do rallies and things that get him on television. But he has not really invested in the things that traditionally win campaigns. He may be able to say at the end of this, well, look how well I did, even if he doesn't win, look how well I did without doing all those things. And it's true, very few other candidates could, could be where he is given the lack of investment in these things. But we are at a point now where I think donors look at this and Republican operatives look at this and they see Trump having had maybe the best or, or you know, best week or best two weeks of his general election campaign and still sort of shake their heads and say, you know, it, it's slightly improved performance, but he doesn't have a healthy campaign. He doesn't have an organization and you can't build it at this point, which prevents, right? It just makes 
donors and people sort of shift their resources away from the presidential, and it just it's not going to happen at this late point. And you know, it, it's sort of the die is cast at this point for Donald and the, Trump. And the money that he is spending, it's it's a little perplexing at times. I mean, we talk about this Cambridge Analytica firm that's owned by the Mercers that's doing data stuff for them. They're just spending a ton of money on digital ads and on social media, and it seems like so mistargeted. I know that, like, you know, we're in the you, know, you talk to like campaign pros, and they say that like eventually it will shift, and day and digital ads will be more <laughs> to have more hats. It'll shift, so the campaigns are run entirely on hats. No, but uh, that they are spending a lot of money on these digital ads. You see them all over like Facebook, but like constantly getting, uh, you know, uh, you, you see the Democrats tweeting like people who like really should not be being targeted by their social media ad buys, like hard D, Democratic operatives tweeting that like their Facebook feed is filled with promoted, you know, Donald Trump ads or, you know, and that's not really money well spent. You know, it's almost like they're rushing to catch up and to spend money to show that they could spend money. And it's, you know, it is it is sort of to what effect. That's it for us. Goodbye, Scotland. Goodbye. Goodbye, Eli Stokels. Bye. Goodbye, Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. Goodbye, Charlie Matessian. See you, Christian. Thank you to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy. Thanks to our listeners, and thanks to Australia. Talk to you next week. We love doing this podcast, and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com, and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.